welcome back to Create Space, a podcast that finds joy in the art of storytelling. So today's episode actually arose from an email that I got back in the fall of 2022, so almost a year and a half ago-ish. And the email was from the person who's in the studio with me today, Dr. Katie Lanning. So I'm going to tell you about what was in that email and what we're going to talk about. But before I get there, um, I just want to stop and say thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I think this will be a lot of fun. Yes. So Dr. Lanning is an assistant professor of uh, English here at Wichita State. So she's a colleague of mine. And we had not met prior to fall of 2022. And she reached out to me uh, because she saw a presumably online schedule of courses, whatever, that I teach a class called Audio Storytelling and Podcasting. So Katie has been doing um, a lot of research and actually preparing course content that just got approved um, for offering a class, a whole class that's focused on literature in the audio age. So we're going to talk a lot about what that means um, and why it's important because when I first got the email, I was... I was confused and kind of intrigued by it because it's just something I hadn't considered, I guess. And so, you know, in my mind, I was like, a book is a book, whether you're reading it, whether it's in like a hardback or um, an e-reader or an audiobook or whatever, it's still the same words. Mm -hmm. But then even as that thought came into my head, I realized how kind of silly that sounds, <laughs> that obviously the context and the medium in which some content is portrayed really has a a big impact on how that content is um, perceived by the audience, right? right? But I just, I hadn't ever thought, a bit, thought about it, or at least I'd never put it into words. So the, the short story of all of that is that we kind of emailed back and forth for a little bit, met up for coffee, um, and realized that this could be like a really cool collaboration. So what happened is uh, we kind of combined your knowledge of literature and um, the history of all of that and my knowledge of production. And now you've come into my audio storytelling class two different semesters um, to provide a guest lecture about like literature in the audio age and, and all of that. And what made me want to have you on the podcast to, to talk through this is that both times you've come in, the students have had rave, Aww. I mean, just reviews. Like they've, they've awesome. loved it. And, and we've talked after the lectures that the students are so engaged. They're yeah. asking questions. They're, they have meaningful commentary to add. And it's just a really fascinating thing that I have never thought to teach. <laughs> um, and I don't have the background to teach well. So I love getting to bring you in for that. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of us in the digital storytelling world, we just don't have the background in the literature the way that you guys do. Mm -hmm. We don't have that academic um, foundation. So that's why I also knew, like, if my students love it, this is also a great topic for the podcast. Great. So before we, at some point here in a moment, I'm going to kind of hand over the reins to you to, to sort of walk us through the audio samples we're going to listen to. But before we do that, would you mind just sharing kind of your background as to, you know, what you teach and how um, literature and audio and all of that sort of became an interest of yours? Yeah. So what's interesting about this topic is it was an interest of mine before I even went to grad school. Really? It's actually an interest of mine before I even went to high school. Oh, wow. Um, so my mom's an elementary school teacher. And growing up, she would read to us every night. And so it would start with like baby books and board books and kids books. And then once we were in junior high, chapters of novels. Right. Um, so we'd go through the Chronicles of Narnia a chapter at a time or um, 
Anne of Green Gables, a chapter at a time, and Harry Potter was starting to come out when oh, I was yes. in junior high. So it was a big deal to make sure we stayed on top of Harry Potter because everybody in my class was reading it, right? And so this will reveal how old I am because <laughs> it was late 1999 when we were trying to finish The Chamber of Secrets and we were on Christmas vacation and my mom didn't bring the book. I thought, oh my God, how are we going to finish this on time? All my friends will have finished it. I threw a fit. So she got the audiobook version on cassette tape with Jim Dale and we listened to the final chapters on cassette on our way home from, I don't even remember, see, I don't even remember where we were. I just remember <laughs> that we were listening to the audio cassette tape. And so when I got back to school, did you finish Chamber of Secrets? Yeah, did you? Yeah. And I had mentioned, I finished it, loved the story, finished it by listening to the audiobook. And my friends were like, well, then you didn't read it. Oh. <laughs> do not tell <laughs> a book nerd. There. Right, yeah. You cannot tell a bookworm that they did not read a book that they liked. So I said, well, I did read it. And they said, well, you didn't read those chapters. And I mentioned, well, I, I read it. We read all the other chapters. They said, what do you mean we? Well, my mom read the chapters out loud. Well, then you didn't read those either. So then they're trying to tell me I'd never read Harry Potter. Those are some harsh critics. Harsh critics, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so from that age, I was already saying, I have read these books, even though I was not holding the book, looking at the words on the page, because right. I had heard that. I had heard it, and I listened carefully. So... That got me interested in audiobooks. And then my, my research side is that I study tech texts as technology um, and technologies that go into making texts. So I teach about how books are made, what's the history of different technologies that go into book production. Um, then I suddenly realized, oh, audiobooks are a part of this and tapped into that long-held grudge, I guess, that I've had about not reading Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Um, yeah, and so that's how I came to it. I just picture that eventually you're going to have this, you know, published book about how audiobooks are literature just as much, and then you're going to be like, hey, <laughs> little Jimmy and Susie yeah. or whoever it was, like, <laughs> check out what I've done. I'll like, dedicate it to them. <laughs> yes, in that little front. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's yeah. amazing. So this is is not really related to the audio part, but just because I'm curious, um, technology and text. Mm -hmm. When you say that, to me, what jumps in my brain is like a printing press. Yeah, um, absolutely. But what else besides that is that research about? Or like what else yeah. does that involve? It can go, so there's so much more even to like the hand press era than just the press itself. So you have the compositors who are in charge of picking all the letters out of the cases and putting them in um, and the tools that they use to do that which can lead to really interesting errors in text. Oh, uh, so yeah. I do some research. I'm currently working on a project on typographical errors in Jonathan Swift's satire, and that he kind of expects these to happen. That's so cool. Yeah, and we wouldn't know that he expects it to happen unless we know what is the technology that was used at the time and how is it often misused. Right. right? Um, I mean, some of my stuff goes even pre-press era. What is manuscript culture like? What parts of manuscript culture were forgotten versus retained into the printing era? What happens when anybody can print a book? Right. right? The access is much different yes. now. Yes. And then on the other hand, also, what can we do to use technology to better understand literature? So I do a lot with GIS, so Geographical Information Systems software, to map things in books to kind of better understand the way texts are understanding wow. place. Yeah. So like where those texts take place is mm -hmm. what you're talking about? Yeah. And if they mention oh, okay. like street names and things, put together a map of where the character is going and better see like what were their movements in that story. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. This might be another podcast episode that okay. we have to do. That would be that's fun. Yeah. Wildly fascinating. <laughs> wow. 
Um, okay, cool. So let's kind of move on. And like I said, the way that we kind of decided to do this, what I loved about your guest lecture, and I think what the students really loved about it too, is how interactive it is and how you actually let us hear things and explain the context of um, what that technology or what that text has in history. Mm -hmm. So what I'd love for you to do is just sort of walk us through what you do in that presentation. We're going to listen to some of the audio samples um, and you're just going to help us, me and, and the listeners, to, to kind of uh, dissect what we're hearing and, and add some commentary to it. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, let's do it. Awesome. So I'm going to start with the, the earliest sound recordings that we know of that date back to 1860, which is actually 17 years before uh, Thomas Edison invents the phonograph. Um, and I don't speak French, so this French inventor's <laughs> name, we'll see if I say it correctly. There's a French inventor named Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville. Sounded good to me. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> who made a recording on what he called a phonograph. So not the phonograph. Not the phonograph, a phonograph. Okay. About 17 years before the phonograph. Um, and this worked by tracing sound waves onto paper that had been blackened by soot or ash. It didn't really take off. Um, despite its innovation, and, and history doesn't come across a recorded sound again until Thomas Edison built his first phonograph. And that's the machine that has a stylus or a needle uh, that vibrates across a wax-coated cylinder. And it produces sound because there are different grooves that have been carved or cut into the wax with varying depths, and that causes the vibrations to shift as the stylus runs across the cylinder. And that sound is amplified by a cone you can think of like the Grammys Award, for example, a cone or a horn. Oh, that, yeah. So that's where that comes from. Okay. Yeah. That gotcha. amplifies the sound of the needle vibrating on the cylinder. But what I think is interesting is that Edison invents this b with a narrow scope in mind. He wants it to be used to uh, record and report telegrams. So he's only thinking about this one usage. He's not thinking about music. He's not thinking about literature. He's just thinking about how can we pass along news more quickly. Right. But the thing that seems to always happen with big technological inventions is that the world has other plans for that invention. Right. Um, so Edison introduces the phonograph. Um, it doesn't take long for literature to become a part of the world of recorded sound after that. So Edison steps away from sound recording for a while to focus on inventing the light bulb. <laughs> right. Important as well. Right. <laughs> Important. Um, and the Alexander Graham Bell Company picks up the technology for sound and continues to develop it. They make some improvements to the machine, and then they pitch it as a product for public consumption. So not to um, improve telegram reporting, but for everybody to use. Uh, and they call it the graphophone, and it's like a smaller, more compact version of a phonograph. So they've cleverly just switched the syllables around. <laughs> yeah. it's like, we can't think of a name. Let's just flip just those. Just flip it around. <laughs> Um, so it's the same idea, just smaller, a, a wax cylinder with a stylus, a horn attached. And to market this product, Alexander Bell makes a recording and releases it to the public. And he could have recorded anything he wanted. He could have said, I am Alexander Bell. This is my graphophone. Hear my voice. Right. Buy this product, whatever. And instead, he chose to quote a line from Shakespeare. And uh, if you're going to pitch for the first time ever the use of sound by using Shakespeare, that interests me as a literature scholar. Right, right. right? So we have that sound, but remember that it was it's an old recording, so it was made in September of 1881, so already a, an older technology, and then how that recording has held up over time is not ideal either. Right. But we do have the recording, and it is 
good to remember that when it was first listened to, it would have been remarkable and probably even unbelievable to those listening to the sound. So this is Alexander Bell quoting lines from Hamlet. Good crackle on there. Yeah. <laughs> so this, it is wild to think that that would have been remarkable. Yes. And yeah. now we're like, ugh. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I think that's why it's good to remind people of that because we listen to it like, wow, that's pretty terrible. <laughs> but what a privilege to be able to say that's a terrible recording. Yeah. Um, so he's reading lines from Act One, Scene Five of Hamlet, and, and he said, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And my, my first question is, why might Bell have picked these lines? Again, anything he could have said to pitch this product to the public. Why these lines from a Shakespeare play? And I, it's interesting, and that's, this is what I love about, about you walking us through this, is that you know, my, my gut instinct is mm, somewhat correct, but also there's so much more to it as we go through you know, what we talk about. But, but I think the first thing that jumps out to me is just that like you said, this is so remarkable that he's saying there are more things in heaven and in earth than we've ever dreamt of. This is so far beyond what you thought we were capable of and look what's happening. Exactly. That's what it reads to me just off the top. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's good that off the top you get that impression because yes, it's Shakespeare. I'm rolling my eyes for (laughs) people listening. Um, I like Shakespeare, but my students know I think Shakespeare gets a lot of credit and a lot of room in an English department. And so it's it's like you can still understand what Alexander Bell is getting at if you don't know anything about Hamlet. Right. 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 And I think that's interesting. Yeah. And can I ask? So I know how as a general society, we perceive Shakespeare right now, which is it's, you know, a sophisticated text and we study it in school and some people specialize in it, but it's not an active part of my everyday life. It's not, I don't normally read things that sound like that. At that time, was Shakespeare more palatable and consumed more often or was it still kind of that same vibe? Probably consumed more often. Okay, so that helps a little bit, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I think even if they couldn't remember, oh, that's, you know, act one, scene five, line 123 or whatever, they'd probably go, well, that's Hamlet. Right, right. And so I'm, I'm going to give more context about the scene yeah. for those of us, <laughs> you and me included, who are yep. maybe not reading Hamlet all the time. Um, so there are actually two versions of Hamlet that were produced in Shakespeare's lifetime. One's a lot shorter than the other. So um, I'm going to go through the shorter version just because it's quicker, but we'll hear the longer version in some of these audio clips. Um, and, and what's happening here, so the, the larger plot of Hamlet is that a young Hamlet, who's the Prince of Denmark, has just come home from university, and he encounters the ghost of his father, who tells Hamlet that he's been murdered. And, and he tells Hamlet who's murdered him, but hey, I'm not going to spoil it. <laughs> right. So Hamlet, the rest of the play, Hamlet's going to try to seek revenge on his father's murderer. And the lines that we've listened to come immediately after this meeting with the father's ghost. And Hamlet is there with his two friends, Horatio and Marcellus, and they catch up to Hamlet and they ask him what he's up to. Uh, And he tells them that they have to swear not to tell anybody what he's about to say, because it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like Hamlet's lost his mind. I I just talked to my father's ghost, right? So the lines, and I'm not gonna try to perform them at all, (laughs) because we're gonna do enough listening to performance coming up, but Hamlet says, never make known what you have seen tonight. And Horatio and Marcellus say, my lord, we will not. And that's not enough for Hamlet. So he says, nay, but swear it. 
And Horatio says, propose the, or propose the oath, my lord. And Hamlet says, never to speak of this that you have seen, swear by my sword. And the stage direction tells us that both friends then place their right hand on the sword. And then another really interesting stage direction tells us that the ghost speaks from beneath the stage. So the ghost is not on the stage, not visible. That's important for us. And the ghost simply says, swear. And that astounds Horatio, who is in the play and understood by many readers since to be a very rational bookworm student. What's he, how is he going to react to hearing a ghost for the first time? Horatio says, oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. And Hamlet says, and therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So we have this, we have this logical, bookish Horatio, uh, who I think is honestly there to let the audience know that the ghost is real and that Hamlet's right. not crazy. Um, reacting to the first time to this sound that he can't also see. And I think that's really key, that you can't see the person speaking. And Hamlet's saying, just because you can't see the person speaking doesn't mean he isn't real. Right. Right. Which leads right into a sound recording. Exactly. Of, I mean. And then you go, oh, okay, Alexander Bell, I see what you're up to. Right? That there's this parallel between the wondrous strange sound of the ghost for Horatio and the wondrous strange sound of the graphophone recording for 19th century audiences. Right. Uh, yeah, so you can't, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's real. You could never imagine a technology like this, Bell is saying. But Bell actually switches, I, it depends on which version of Hamlet you read, I suppose, but Bell switches your philosophy, which is the general reading of the line, to our philosophy mm -hmm. in his reading of the line. Why do you think he might have switched it? Yeah, it's such a small thing. And the funny thing is, I don't even know if I would have noticed it had you not brought it up. Yeah. And when we've used this sample in class, there have been several different thoughts and opinions about it. But I think the one that, that we've heard the most and the one that, that at least clicked for me is that when Hamlet tells Horatio that it's kind of more like Hamlet already believes it. Hamlet's been in this. The ghost has been talking to me. I've been trying to tell y'all. Mm -hmm. And he knows Horatio is a hard sell. Yeah. So he's like, listen, your philosophy doesn't include this, but I'm telling you, it's real. Whereas Alexander Graham Bell is trying to bring the the world in with him, yes. saying of, of everything we have previous previously believed is different. Yes, absolutely. That it's a, a collective experience we're all getting to enjoy now. Yeah, this, yeah. Like, recorded sound. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as we move now through this, what I call a tour through the audio history of Hamlet, what I ask your students, and it blows me away every time because they, they all find different things and they find things that I don't find. I ask them this set of three questions. So I'll just pose the same questions for you and the listeners here. The first is, as we listen to the clip, what do you hear? And the second is, how is sound helping us interpret the scene? And the third is, how does the reading or the recording compare to other recordings. Gotcha, okay. So what do you hear? How is sound helping you interpret? How does it compare? Okay. And we're just kind of go, going through a sound recording technology history together. Sure. So I want to start with a reading of Hamlet for the BBC radio in 1948. To think about radio, uh, because radio plays were super popular in the 30s and 40s, and it was really common for actors to reprise famous roles and like 30-minute radio adaptations of popular movies or plays. So if you have a favorite old movie, 
there's probably a radio adaptation by the same cast, which is always fun. That's cool, yeah. yeah. It was also common for radio personalities to do dramatic readings of classic novels and short stories. And then, of course, radio was also home to new genres of storytelling altogether with radio serials like Little Orphan Annie or Jack Armstrong, The All-American Boy. And I was raised by my grandpa. And so he would always be like, oh, let's, let's, let's listen to my favorite show. And I, I remember being really young and being like, thinking it's going to be a TV show. Yeah. And then he gets out this cassette tape of an old radio serial recording. Wow that we listened to, and it was Jack Armstrong and the All-American Boy. Um, and part of the reason they were popular is because radios, well, first of all, they were in homes long before television, which I didn't sure. understand as a child, listening to my grandpa's show. I was like, why aren't we watching anything? <laughs> um, and it was also cheaper to just turn on the radio and listen to a reading that way than it was to go to the theater to watch Hamlet, or even to buy a copy of Hamlet at the bookstore. So Shakespeare easily found a home at radio stations around the world. So let's listen to our first Hamlet scene from this 1948 production for radio. And this production, by the way, uses that longer version of the scene. Um, they, they call that one like the good quarto versus the bad quarto. I always find it interesting when people decide which version is correct. They just, uh, yeah, make yeah. a judgment call there. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the argument is that Shakespeare, it's more accurate to sh Shakespeare's like original notes or something. Gotcha. I don't know. I like the bad one. <laughs> Well, let's see. Let's see yeah, what we think. Here we go. Never make known what you have seen tonight. My lord, my lord we will not. Nay, but swear it. In faith, my lord, not I. Nor I, my lord, in faith. Upon my sword. We have sworn, my lord, already. Indeed, upon my sword. Indeed. Ha <laughs> Says thus. Art thou there, Truepenny? Come on. You hear this fellow in the cellarage? Consent to swear. Propose the oath, my lord. Never to speak of this that you have seen. Swear by my sword. Pick it, you by queer, then we'll shift our ground. Come hither, gentlemen, and lay your hands again upon my sword. Swear by my sword. Never to speak of this that you have heard. Swear by his sword. Well said, old mole. <laughs> Canst work in the earth so vast. <laughs> A worthy pioneer. Once more remove, good friend. Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than I dreamt of in your philosophy. So there's the longer version. And that's the reason it's longer is that Hamlet and his friends are now moving around the stage or, or mo moving around the ground to kind of test whether the voice follows them around. Right. And the, the reason I said I like the short one better is that the longer one then gets a little repetitive yeah. for me. And I like the urgency of the short one of Horatio's just immediate reaction. But in this longer version, Horatio's reacting after hearing the ghost a few times. Mm -hmm. Right. Anything you notice about this recording? Like, what do you hear? I think the, the most interesting thing is when I heard um, Alexander Graham Bell's version, uh, or not whole version, but just that quote. Mm -hmm. And when I think about what he's using it for, it's very hopeful. It's very, let's embark on this new terrain together. Yeah. And in the context of the show, it's very foreboding. Yes. It's a lot more fear-based than hopeful. Absolutely. And I think that comes across. Definitely. Just, just the sound of Hamlet saying that line of, there are more things. It's not 
celebratory, right? No. It's like the things that we haven't thought of are actually quite terrible. Yeah, it's cautionary. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the moving around the stage is interesting. And I'm kind of with you of like, I don't know if my first thought upon hearing a ghost for the first time would be to test it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I would just be scared first uh -huh. versus like, hold on, let's just see where this guy can go. Right. Like, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, unless Horatio thinks he's being pranked, maybe. Oh, that's fair. That way. I had, and he, his personality would lend itself to thinking it's not real. So right. that's actually a really good yeah. point now that yeah. you say that. And I will say, too, that something that trans transmits through sound and would not as well just through reading it is the, the space, right? Yes. That they do give distance from the microphone when they're supposed to be further away. Absolutely. And that's some, yeah, that's, that's different, too. That's such a good point, that if you're reading the scene, the words on the page aren't changing. Like, like the font, the size of the word, nothing's changing to indicate that right. physical distance. But in the radio recording, they are literally stepping away from the microphone yeah. to create that distance. And so, and at that time, those are usually, I mean, those were recorded like all at once, right? Yes, so they yes. had to like one take, move, move back, yes, like the very, whole thing. Very carefully choreographed. Yeah. yeah. Where a radio play would be performed and broadcast live, as we were just saying, mm -hmm. you had to be, as an audience member, ready to listen as it aired. Elsewhere in sound recording technology, the record player, or the 20th century adaptation of the phonograph, now played flat discs of vinyl, AKA the record, instead of cylinders. And an LP or a long play record could hold up to 50 minutes of material. But what I think is so fascinating about the history of vinyl, which is so, it's now, but for a long time been associated with music, um, is that it's the earliest produced records were not music performances. Uh, they instead were recordings of classic works of literature produced for blind students. So it was a technology wow. about accessibility. Yeah. That is wild because I feel like that is a somewhat um, erased part yeah, of that history absolutely. unless you know the history and you research it. But that up until you had told me that, I had no clue right. that that was a part of it. Yeah. It's, it's so associated with music now. Right. And it started as a way to read literature. That's, that's yeah. crazy. So in the 1930s, and this is before LP records were even available, and records could only hold about five minutes of sound, um, a company called the American Foundation for the Blind initiated a project to produce what they called talking books for blind American students. And th this company was the first to license LP technology and really showcase the value of long play records. So you could read a whole novel or something. Um, and another thing that's interesting about it is that this happening in the 1930s, and it's it's creating copyright conundrums that are really similar to what we see now with Amazon Kindle, for example, trying to make text accessible with speech-to-text functions, mm -hmm. uh, or I guess text-to-speech functions. I said that the wrong way. I interpreted it correctly, even <laughs> though like I just flipped it back in my brain. Yeah. So, so yeah, the the same kind of questions around whether accessibility is beholden to the same copyright restrictions was happening in the 1930s with these talking book records. Um, the, the project was discontinued by the mid-1950s because by then records were pretty pervasive. There were a lot of other companies recording literature. Um, and one popular company was called The Living Shakespeare Incorporated. Um, as their name might indicate, their mission was to make it feel like Shakespeare was alive and well and directing a, a private 
uh, play in your living room. So let's listen to our Hamlet scene. This is from 1962, Living Shakespeare Incorporated. See what you hear in this version. Never make known what you have seen tonight. My lord, we will not. Nay, but swear it. In faith, my lord, not I. Nor I, my lord, in faith. Upon my sword. We have sworn, my lord, already. Indeed, upon my sword, indeed. That one's quite a bit different. Yeah, yeah. What are you hearing in this one? Um, it feels a lot more of a. I don't want to say performance because the other one was definitely performed, but the use of sound effects, yes. um, both natural sound effects like the, you know, the twinkling or the bells or whatever mm -hmm. it is that we're hearing, but also just the voice effects on the ghost. I mean, yeah. they really put a lot into that ghost in mm -hmm. a way that the first ghost almost sounds a little bit silly to me. Right. Whereas this one kind of sort of scared me a little bit. Yeah, it, it actually potentially is supernatural in right. a way that the voice of the ghost in the radio show wasn't. Yeah, and they yeah. wouldn't have had a way to do anything right. like that anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's got this sort of ambient sound also that makes it feel creepy. Mm-hmm. There's a more, uh, I feel like it defines the environment yeah. in, in a slight, like I could kind of picture, and because I know how radio shows work, when I listen to the first one, I picture the guys in the studio, Yes. you know, whereas here I could actually picture these guys in the environment in which they're supposed to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the soundscape that they built has a lot to do with that. Definitely. I would think. It's still, it's still scary. Like it still definitely does not move into the hopeful right. thing that Alexander Graham Bell was doing. Absolutely. I think this Hamlet in particular sounds a bit annoyed or agitated with Horatio. Oh, yeah, When he yeah. delivers his line. I mean, especially when he says the word philosophy, he kind of spits it out. Mm -hmm. uh, almost in this resentful way that that is not present in the radio version, certainly not present in Alexander Bell's interpretation. Yeah, yeah. it hits more of that... I, I just need you on board now. Yes. Like, I don't have time to convince you of this. Right. I get that you're logical and rational, but this is not a logical and rational moment. Just jump in with me. Right. This is really creepy. Yeah, exactly. That's really fascinating. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the other thing is the sound recording and the soundscape and all of that and the production value has a lot to do with it. But the performance, the performer's performance right. and the way they interpret the text yes. has a lot to do with yes, it, too. exactly. Which I know we'll see in some of the future stuff, too. Right, yeah. The, the choices of what to emphasize and when the tone of your voice is going to change is, is up to the performer. Right. Yeah. Or the director. Or the, or the director. Combination yes, of, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the next technology we go to is when I start to lose some students, not all students <laughs> in your class, and then I start to feel my age because we move to um, the audiobook of the cassette tape. And I say in your class, I think I said something like, now we're in the totally tubular 90s <laughs> and get blank stares. I think I laughed and I yes, might have been the I only one. I appreciated that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where you and I start listening to yes. stuff. This is where our memories kick exactly. in. Exactly, yes. Uh, you get the cassette tape, more portable, more affordable. You know, put it in your Sony Walkman and go for a run. Uh, so when audiobooks move from vinyl to cassette, it really opens up even more opportunity for individual and private listening. 
and for listening on the move, listening on the go, which I think is how audiobooks are used a lot now. Right, absolutely. So much easier to carry around two cassette tapes than four LPs. Yeah. Um, recording lengths varied, but typically a cassette could hold about two hours of sound, so much better than an LP. They're budget-friendly. For better or worse, that means that you can tell how budget-friendly they are when you listen to some of them. So that's why I've picked this version from One Voice Recordings, uh, a cassette audiobook from 1990. Never make known what you have seen tonight. My lord, I will not, nay, but swear it upon my sword. I have sworn, my lord, already. Propose the oath, my lord, never to speak of this that you have seen. Swear by my sword. Never to speak of this that I have seen, but this is wondrous and strange. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatia, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I love that one yeah. because it always makes me smile and it always makes the students in the class laugh yes. when they hear it. I think that's their favorite ghost. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. But He's trying so hard. Yes, yes. I think that's thinking about why we have that reaction to that ghost is useful, right? Yeah. Like what is it about the delivery of that line that makes you smile? I think it goes back to the what you envision when you hear it. Yeah. So again, I very much picture one guy sitting at a desk with a mic in front of him and he's going all out. He is trying his best yes. to make this ghost, like he's committed to the bit, Yeah, but it doesn't work, I don't think. Right. It doesn't feel paranormal. It doesn't feel, it feels like if a parent were reading a ghost book to their kid and Absolutely. didn't really want to scare them, but uh -huh. just kind of wanted to you know, yeah. make it be kind of funny. Yeah. Which I feel bad because I don't think that's probably what he was going for. But well, I think you're right that he's going for trying to get across the line without actually scaring the reader, or okay, the listener. So that's fair. Then right? I think yeah. that's a really good comparison that this is like a, a G-rated <laughs> performance yeah, okay, or something. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, it's called one voice recording, so it makes sense. It's the same guy doing mm -hmm. all the lines. But um, did you notice any other sound details or lack of sound details that change how you interpret yeah I think uh, it you know you mentioned before that the cassette tape versus um, vinyl it became much more accessible to both the end user mm -hmm. as well as the creator right. and and as we go on I know once we kind of get more into like the podcast realm of things um, access is a huge part of that in terms of who can create and how much that costs you and how much time it takes you. And so I can imagine that this one voice recording took way less time and way less budget than what the Living Shakespeare Incorporated yeah. vinyl in 62 did. Um, and you can hear that. There's not the voice effects. There's not the natural sound effects. There's not the ambience and, and the environmental tone that builds the scene. There's not any of that. Which on the one hand is is bad in the sense of it doesn't, to me, it doesn't read as well. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, though, it does allow more people to hear it. Yeah. It does allow it, you know, there's there's a give and take there. Right. Of, well, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to get it in the hands of more people? Yes. So I don't know. It's an interesting thought. Absolutely. And then I also think we were talking about how the voice actor or director also has a role to play, I guess pun intended, in interpreting how the lines are delivered. Right. So even though this is one voice and he's 
I do think that we can hear him trying to distinguish voices of different characters. I think he has a really interesting delivery of the last line to Horatio. I think this Hamlet sounds tired. He sounds like resigned and mm -hmm. sad and just like, well, there's more things than we can understand. Yeah. Right? Instead of the urgency or the annoyance uh, or even it bells like jubilation in the line, there's something really exhausted happening here. Yeah. It almost plays more hopeless. Yeah. And not that the other ones were hopeful, but he was still in the fight in yes. the other ones. He yes. was still invested exactly. in what was about to happen. Whereas here he's kind of like, this ghost has got us. Right. <laughs> like, this is this is it now. Yeah, and think about how that changes our understanding of the character for the rest of the play. Right. right. If he feels resigned to the destiny that the ghost is telling him he needs to do, then Hamlet's not a very active or proactive character for the yeah. rest of the play. Whereas if he's urgently accepting the task at hand, he is going to be an active agent in the story. Yeah, which feels more interesting yes. to me to go that route. Yeah, so it, I think just the way like one line gets delivered mm -hmm. can change what we think of this protagonist. And even on maybe a subconscious level, because yeah. I don't know that I would have been able to put into words or specifically notice that, but I think that anybody would feel it in the character, yes. even if they weren't able to say why exactly. Absolutely. Which is a lot of what sound is, and that's what I tell my students, is that a lot of times people don't recognize good sound, but it's the difference between someone saying, well, I like this one better than that one. Right. I can't tell you exactly why, yeah. but this one feels better to exactly. me. And so I feel like a lot of times we um, interpret sound in a slightly more subconscious way. Yeah. And you're helping us put mm -hmm. it into words, yeah. which, is, which is why this is so fascinating yes, to I me. Yes, I love this. Okay, so we move from cassettes to a little bit later compact discs or CDs, which is another one that some of my students anyway, <laughs> some of them weren't sure what that was. And that, <laughs> that made me want to just go sit in a corner. That yeah. hurts. Um, also pervasive in the 90s, uh, become extremely popular. And so while some audiobooks like our cassette tape in the last example, were low-budget, single-speaker, bare-bones affairs. Other audiobooks in the 90s were very lofty productions. So that's what I've picked here, um, where radio and CD come together for a joint production in 1993, when the BBC produced a new version of Hamlet directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh, who's sort of the actor in the 90s to go to for Shakespeare. And this production was broadcast on air and then also sold as a CD. So I, it was a big deal when it came out, and in particular, it was noted for having a good production value, lots of bells and whistles than older audiobooks, including that one we just listened to. So here is, from 1993, the Hamlet dramatized radio play on CD. Never make known what you have seen tonight. My lord. We will not. Nay, but swear it. In faith, my lord, not I. Nor I, my lord, in faith. Upon my sword. We have sworn, my lord, already. Indeed, upon my sword, indeed. Ah, ah, boy, sayest thou so? Art thou there, true penny? Come on, you hear this fellow in the cellarage? Consent to swear. Propose the oath, my lord. Never to speak of this that you have seen. Swear by my sword. Swear. We swear. We swear. Hic et ubique. Then we'll shift our ground. Come hither, gentlemen, and lay your hands again upon my sword. Never to speak of this that you have heard. Swear by my sword. Swear by his sword. We swear. We swear. Ah, 
Well said, old mole. Canst work in the earth so fast. A worthy pioneer. Once more, remove, good friends. Oh, day and night. But this is wondrous strange. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Okay, that one feels way different yes. to me. Yes. Way different. There's so much to listen to yes. in it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Very produced mm -hmm. um, in a good way, I would say. And I think the even outside of just the production value, the I mean, the actors are just better. Yes. <laughs> just better. Yes. All of them. Uh-huh. There's an um, the word that came to me is intense. Yeah. Like the whole scene is so intense, mm -hmm. I think. I think so too. That that the actors are not afraid of like running their words together mm -hmm. and rushing and sounding intense, also even maybe a little exhilarated. Oh which yeah. Which I think is interesting. Yeah. But it's not just fear, there's something also exciting in what's happening that comes through in their language, yeah. particularly Hamlet, um, which we were talking about the Hamlet who feels sad <laughs> and tired. Yeah. This is a Hamlet I want to listen to. This is an active Hamlet right? for sure. Yeah. And I remember, uh, I can't remember who, but somebody in, in our class mentioned that this, the way that they overlap each other and talk on top of each other, which is very natural in human conversation, especially in an intense conversation like that, um, just can't come through in yeah. one voice recording, Absolutely. right? Unless you're layering things and, and whatever, and even then it would still sound weird because mm -hmm. it's all one voice. Mm -hmm. But the ability to do that makes it feel so much more real, yeah, I think, to us. Yes, and I have a, a pet peeve with some Shakespeare productions. A common stage direction is that characters will say something in unison, and then the characters will say it in perfect unison. Uh, I think we've heard that in a couple of recordings. Uh -huh. In this one, when they swear to Hamlet and they say, we swear it's not perfect. Right. Somebody says it a little before the other one, and that I liked. It's such a small detail. Yeah, but, but again, goes really, to your point. Like that feels more real. Uh huh. Because I mean, yeah, in real life, if we accidentally say something in unison, it's it's the exception, right? right? We say, oh, jinx. Yeah, like, yeah. it's a weird moment. It's mm -hmm. not a common moment. Yeah. But overlapping in by little bits is very common. Yeah. There's, in Shakespeare, there's a lot of parts where things are supposedly said in unison. Right. I've never considered that. Yeah. But that makes so much more sense to have it the way that they did it just now. Yeah. Hmm. And it just, it just fit the kind of chaos of the moment for right. me. Right. Chaos. Ooh, yeah, that's another good word. Chaos yeah. and intensity were the two things yeah. I feel like that really come through. And I get why people like that Kenneth guy. Uh -huh. Branagh, is that Branagh, how you said uh -huh. his last name? I so did so. he do um, visual, like, plays as well for Shakespeare? Like, yes, he did all of plays that? plays and a few films, too. I yeah. need to go check out some of those. He's good. Oh, here's a wraparound moment. He also plays Gilderoy Lockhart in the Chamber of Secrets movie. No way! <laughs> yeah. Okay, yep. Wow, that's amazing. I yeah. am. I can yeah. absolutely picture it. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. And so the other things in this one, you know, you get, I think, what did you think of the voice of the ghost? It was uh, very, um, I hate to say believable because I've never heard a ghost, right. so I don't know, but but like it was definitely um, not silly, right. right? It was very layered. It was very nuanced. It was mm -hmm. like super intense, but also in a subtle sort of a way. Yeah. Like the layering was subtle, but the effect was intense. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. And we had that and we had the thunderstorm. Yes. I like that we could hear the, when it's time to swear on the sword, you can hear the sword getting unsheathed. Because that's the very first time I think that we've heard that. Yes. I mean, we've heard some environmental sound effects, but as far as the actual like Foley sound effects, right. this is the first time I think that we've heard that. Yeah. As and far it, as I can remember. I think you're right. And it's not like a, like a calm, like taking the sword out slowly. Right. It's an urgent, quick, like here's my sword, swear quickly. Yeah. Right. 
Um, all of that combined, now's the moment to kind of think about interpretation. Uh, Hamlet says our philosophy at the end of this version instead of your philosophy. Ah, yes. Does that fit with everything else that we're hearing in the yeah. scene? Yeah. I feel like it does, at least in my brain, um, because I think that that bit of resentment that you talked about earlier doesn't feel as present in this yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. It feels more like a we are all in this together. It's us against the ghost mm -hmm. versus I'm trying to convince Horatio to get on board. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have, I, I think you said that in the previous recording we listened to, it felt like he was spitting the line. Right. It doesn't have that. Um, it still feels urgent, but in a very different way. The yeah. goal of the urgency feels different. It feels more collective. Exactly. I, I love that. Yeah, they're, they're all exhilarated and scared together, and they're right. all kind of excited together to see what this is going to mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I almost wonder, and this is the very first time this thought has popped into my head, is that up until now, Hamlet's only heard the sound by himself. And yes. so I wonder if there's even a part of him that was like, maybe I am crazy. And so seeing yes. Horatio and Marcellus also hear it could ramp that excitement of up for him of, I'm, I'm really not crazy. This, this is, is actually real. happening. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't felt that until this reading of yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Hmm. Okay, so we, we move now from CDs to our next technology, but we have to then acknowledge the digital rev revolution brought about by computers and the internet. Uh, so now you don't even have to physically purchase a record, a cassette tape, a CD to listen to an audiobook. You just have to download it or click it on your whatever digital library app you use. Uh, and there are several Hamlet audiobooks that were developed in this format, and they range from the big budget productions with famous actors like we were hearing in that CD version to amateur recordings like we kind of heard in that cassette tape version. Um, and I thought since we just looked at that big budget audiobook CD in our last example, I would choose an audiobook that was made by a volunteer for an open access program, so free to anybody who wants to use it. This is the um, greatest literature series produced by LibriVox, which literally means voice of the book. So they're gonna just give us the book. and. Think, think about this for a minute. Sound recording technology has now reached such a level that anybody can record themselves reading a book, ideally one that's not in copyright so they don't get right. in trouble, and then they can post it online for anybody else to listen to. So that's basically what we have here. A volunteer gets to call all the shots on how and what to read and just post it for anybody to listen to. Um, so this is our Hamlet digital audiobook from 2007, LibriVox. Hamlet. Never make known what you have seen tonight. Horatio and Marcellus. My lord, we will not. Hamlet. Nay, but swear it. Horatio. In faith, my lord, not I. Marcellus. Nor I, my lord, in faith. Hamlet. Upon my sword. Marcellus. We have sworn, my lord, already. Hamlet. Indeed, upon my sword, indeed. Ghost. Beneath. Swear. Hamlet, ha, ha, boy, sayst thou so? Art thou there, true penny? Come on, you hear this fellow in the cellarage, consent to swear. Horatio, propose the oath, my lord. Hamlet, never to speak of this that you have seen, swear by my sword. Ghost, beneath, swear. Hamlet, hic et uic, then we'll shift our ground. Come hither, gentlemen. 
and lay your hands again upon my sword, never to speak of this that you have heard. Swear by my sword. Ghost beneath. Swear. Hamlet. Well said, old mole. Canst work in the earth so fast, a worthy pioneer. Once more remove, good friends. Horatio. O day and night, but this is wondrous strange. Hamlet. And therefore as a stranger give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> definitely the access thing. That, you know, we talk yep. about that being a balance there. Right. Yeah. I, I had often listened to this one and thought, like, why would you pick this except if, if it's the only one available? Right. But then your students last semester said, well, this would be a great version to listen to if you're trying to memorize the lines. That's right. And that they blew did. my mind. Yeah. yeah. Because it's such a clean, enunciated, mm -hmm. <laughs> like bare bones, make sure you hear all the words with, with almost no performance right to sway an actor when they're just trying to memorize lines and I thought that that's a fantastic way of thinking about okay what's the actual use mm -hmm. of this version and then I think you know it whether the speaker intends to or not he does give us a little bit of interpretation in the performance of the last two words your philosophy I think it's the the only Hamlet we've had so far today that emphasizes the word your yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. We've, we've heard someone emphasize philosophy mm -hmm. or our philosophy, but he says your philosophy in this kind of almost sassy way of like, well, that's you, that's uh -huh. not me, um, that, that works to separate Horatio from Hamlet in kind of a judgmental way uh -huh. in the scene, as though Hamlet's disappointed with Horatio's disbelief or confusion. He needs Horatio to back him up here because he constantly is getting strength from Horatio's support throughout the play and he's going to need that if he's going to avenge his father's death so to be distancing Horatio in this moment is actually pretty significant yeah just from the emphasis of that one word and it, br it brings back the the resent resentment and mm -hmm. the kind of othering yeah. um, and it does add some sass it yeah. definitely does yeah. which is ironic because the rest of the performance is so bland uh-huh that when once I hear it I'm like whoa, whoa. Oh, you did something. <laughs> you did. Now, why that? Yeah. Why that choice? Yeah. That would be so interesting to ask, like, the person who did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and either they would have a, a, an interesting answer or they'd be offended that we called the rest of it bland. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> no. You know, and this is another ghost voice that your students laughed at. Yep. I have to agree. This is like the pirate ghost, I think. <laughs> There's a lot of pirateness in that yes. performance. Like he was so, like, oh, I have to read it. Darn it. Here yeah. we go. Like, All right. Well, th mm -hmm. I'm doing this. Yeah. But so it's a good example of one person, unfunded, amateur recording for open access. Mm -hmm. And when, when you are, you know, as a listener deciding which version to get, you are often going to be a interested in one that's free. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that, as we can hear, is giving us a very different Hamlet than some of our others. Yeah. And, and to think that a lot of people's opinions of Shakespeare are based not necessarily on the text, but on the performance that they've seen. Right. For better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Like it, it makes me think of if Shakespeare were here and 
what would he think about all of these different oh, iterations of his text, yeah, right? Yeah, which Hamlet would he, is his favorite Hamlet. Yeah. Oh, man. That's I now have a new answer for when people say, like, if you could talk to one person, you know, who's <laughs> died or whatever, that would be it. But yeah. what's, I would ask him, of all the things, of all yeah. the years that people have been studying your work, which right. ones are right? Which right. ones are closest to what you thought? Who's, yeah. Who's closest? Yeah. So now we arrive at our last recording, which is called the Hamlet Podcast. It's produced and, and recorded by Conrad, not Conrad, Connor Hanratty in 2018. Um, and just as we had to consider the internet's capacity to transform an audiobook, we should acknowledge how the internet transformed traditions from radio mm -hmm. broadcast. Uh, and we're now we're getting very meta talking about a podcast on a podcast. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm sure that you know that when podcasts first came out, people would try to describe them as like a radio show that listeners can play on their own time. Yeah. Right. So they share a serial structure with many radio shows. But because they're not being broadcast over air, they're not necessarily limited to a certain length of time. And when you combine that serial structure with no restrictions on the length of time, you can get really interesting results when it comes to audio literature. Right. So the version that we're going to listen to, for example, breaks Hamlet up uh, by 30 lines in each episode. The episodes are released weekly. Each episode only looks at 30 lines at a time. And when you read Hamlet 30 lines a week, that means that it would take you, as it took Connor Hanratty, multiple years to complete the reading. Wow. Well, that's a, quite a commitment. Yes, it is. Um, but then it gives him a lot of room to really zoom in on these smaller portions of the play and to really add to his reading in ways that we haven't heard before. So, And I should note that Hanratty starts this episode in the middle of the scene that we've been talking about this whole time. So he sees an inherent cliffhanger um, in the passage, which I think is interesting, that he, he leaves his listeners waiting for a week right after Hamlet urges his friends to swear. And okay. then he picks up the next week with the rest of the scene. Gotcha. The Hamlet Podcast, episode 39. In this episode, we finally reach the end of act one. We ended last week with the high drama of the ghost's voice coming from below the stage, urging Hamlet's fellow watchers to swear not to say a word about what they've seen and heard. Hamlet is at his most energetic, eagerly dragging Horatio and Marcellus to various new locations around the stage in what is perhaps some kind of binding ritual to seal up their promise. Amid all of this, Horatio tries to be there for his friend, but cannot help share a comment on Hamlet's behaviour and demands. Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. It's interesting that Horatio doesn't swear by God or by grace or goodness or by anything more basic than day and night. Given the things that he's been through throughout this act, he can be forgiven for relying on only the most basic certainties, when the sun comes up and when it goes down. All other bets are off. And what he's seen is wondrous strange. Shakespeare is quite a fan of using wondrous as a replacement for very. In other plays, we hear descriptions of things that are wondrous cold or wondrous pitiful, and indeed, wondrous strange. Never is it more appropriate than here, since what Horatio has seen is definitely a wonder. Hamlet takes Horatio's line and puts a clever spin on it in response. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. Since ancient times, proverbs have always counselled that it is right to bid welcome to a stranger. So Hamlet encourages Horatio to trust in what he's been seeing, 
to welcome this new information that will clearly have seismic impact. Hamlet qualifies this encouragement with another rather famous line. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Some editions of the text for this play say our philosophy and some say your philosophy. There are, unsurprisingly, scholar articles out there to be found that debate the inclusion or absence of that single letter Y. Hamlet could be using the word your as others will elsewhere in the play, talking about your mole, your water, your philosophy, rather generally. There are more things out there than philosophy can deal with. He could also be talking specifically about Horatio's philosophy, or indeed a philosophy that he and Horatio both espouse. They are both students at Wittenberg, the home in Germany of Martin Luther and the cradle of European Protestant reform. Of all the universities across Europe, why would Shakespeare have sent his protagonist to this particular German city? Okay. You mentioned meta. I mean, what he's doing is what we're doing. Yes, like it's exactly. literally the same thing. Yes. I love when he starts discussing your versus our because that's what we've been talking about right. a lot. Yeah. Right. And obviously that's a snippet of his podcast. It goes on, but I had to kind of find, I think he goes on to talk about the history of that university. Yeah. So that shows you how in depth he can go with, with no limitations on time. Yeah. What do you think of the reading of the lines there. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and to be very honest with you, I almost feel like I didn't even focus on the reading of the lines as much because yeah. I was so into the commentary mm -hmm. um, that I don't know that I, and I'm, <laughs> I'm also going to be honest and say I really like his accent, so yes. I kind of focused on that. <laughs> so I didn't even hardly notice how it compared. I was so wrapped up in the fact that this is so similar to what we are doing and so much of what I like about podcasting yeah. is that you can break things down in much more of a thorough and detailed way. Right. Um, that that I, I don't know that I paid much attention to the reading of the lines, Katie. And I, I actually <laughs> think that's by design. I don't think he was trying, I don't think he was trying to read the lines in any kind of performing way. Right. Like the way that I first read the scene for us, I think is akin to what he's doing here. He's just kind of getting the line into the podcast so he can talk about it. Yeah. Right? This is the first one where the lines are not the full content. Like right. the commentary is what he's adding to it versus his performance of the lines. Yes. It's a whole it's a whole different thing yes. than what we've heard before. It would be a parallel to like a scholarly edition or study edition of Hamlet that's packed with footnotes. Yes, right? absolutely. Where you get like one or two lines of the passage and then everything that the scholar has to say about it. Because mm -hmm. this this like detour into the history of the University of Wittenberg is to totally a footnote. Like I could see that in a Hamlet edition somewhere. Yeah. So and, and that gives you a different experience of the text. When you have, and we can talk about this if we have time, professors saying that listening to an audiobook is not the same thing as reading a book sometimes that's forgetting that there are different types of books that do different things too, right? right? Because if we can sit here and say, well, the Hamlet podcast is like, I don't know, like an Oxford edition of Shakespeare and that it gives us all of this extra material versus mm -hmm. a Dover edition of Shakespeare, which gives us just the text. If we can make those kinds of comparisons, I think that already starts to show that we're getting similar types of reading experiences from different 
audio versions of Hamlet the way we would from different written versions or printed yeah. versions of Hamlet, right? Yeah, absolutely. This feels more like a class on Hamlet yeah. versus just reading it. Exactly. Which, when you think about the audience for each of these recordings, you know, we talked about how the one with stage directions might be good for someone who is um, preparing to perform the play. Right. I would think that this as well could be good for someone preparing to perform the yeah, play. Yeah, definitely. That's someone who needs more context or someone who just has a hard time understanding Shakespeare, yes. that this could help. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so, okay, so th that's our last recording. Uh -huh. So we've, we've, we've taken this audio tour now and we started the podcast off by talking about your mean friends who didn't <laughs> yes. think listening was reading. Right. And then are finishing it by talking about actual authors and scholars who maybe don't think of audio as reading or mm -hmm. listening as reading. Um, and you've told us a little bit about that, but what I loved um, is your description of close reading and yes. the way that that relates to what we just did. Yes. So could you talk us through that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, let me start with just a little etymology of the history of the word read okay. as a verb first, awesome. because I think that's interesting. And you haven't heard this before. Yes, <laughs> this is coming from <laughs> some other work, but it's it's from a Germanic origin, and that that word meant to read would mean to discern, to interpret, to consider. It's also how we get the word riddle, right? How do I figure something out? Okay, I did not know yeah. those came from the same place. Yeah, and so it's only many centuries after the origin of the word read that it gets associated at all with any particular communication technology, hmm. right? To read a book, to read a manuscript, right? To read a wax tablet um, is a specific sub-meaning of read that comes around centuries later. And I'm not trying to say that that means that that meaning of read is wrong, just that it's historically particular uh, and it's taking an older idea and attaching it to a newer technology. Yeah. And that's the same thing we're doing right now when 100%. we say, how do I read an audiobook, right? So when I say we can read a sound recording, I'm taking that original meaning to interpret, to discern, to consider, and just applying it to another communication technology. Instead of a printed book, what about a CD, right? So in my field of literary studies, we talk a lot about close reading, um, which is a I think maybe a misnomer. Uh, I, you could think about it instead as textual analysis, the very careful assessment of a text, usually a written text, but as I want to show, we can also do it with other kinds of text, where you're, you're reading it with scrutiny or study rather than just for comprehension. Like, I'm not just here for the story of Hamlet. I want to really think about what it's doing. And when scholars close read, they're usually asking a set of textual analysis questions. So a content question, what is the author saying? A technique question, how are they saying it? A purpose question, why are they saying it? And then an effect or audience question, how might certain audiences react to it? And when we close read, sometimes um, we're looking for certain elements that actually do relate to sound, the tone, the voice sure. of the speaker, uh, what is the punctuation doing for how we measure the rhythm of the text? If we're looking at a poem, what is its meter? Where are things being emphasized, right? How do different characters sound different? So a lot of the analytical work of close reading, the questions we ask, are not necessarily about printed texts. Right. They're just about any kind of text that is trying to communicate something. Yeah. And so I think when a professor says, oh, don't, you can't listen to the audiobook in my class, you have to read the book, I don't 
think what they mean is that's not reading. I think what they mean is the kind of text I want you to engage with in this class is a written text. What right? a better way to say that. Yeah, <laughs> and I wish they would. Yeah. Instead of, oh, audiobooks aren't reading. Um, yeah, so it, it's about opening up again to that earlier meaning of reading as a practice of interpreting something. Yeah. And that's what we've been doing today. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it makes me think of like a film studies course. Yeah. Same sort of deal. Right. Different style, but same kind of textual analysis, not textual, but context well, yeah. analysis. Textual analysis. Yeah. Because a film can be a text too, right? And I think the only slippage that you'd want to watch for if you're like assigning a written book in class and someone wants to listen to the audio version is that the distinction, well, you are you are close reading the audio book and I am close reading the printed book. Right. And there will be some differences there, but that's right. okay as long as, as we we're aware. About the performance, the tone, the pacing, all right. of that. Right. Yeah. But that's not to discredit the audio book. That's <laughs> actually to hold up the audio book and say, look at the choices it's making. Yeah. And in doing that, it can remind us that printed books are making choices too. There are editors, there are designers. Picking a font is a choice. What kind of punctuation you use is a choice. Even I like this one, how you mark a line break is a choice. Some of them oh, will have like a sure. little flower in the middle or just a space or yeah. some dots, right? And all of that contributes to how you understand the text. Again, it's like we were talking about before, whether you realize it or not, the choices that went into making that printed book affect how you read it mm -hmm. the same way that we might not be able to say why we like the sound of a certain recording better than another but it, we know that we like it better. Yeah, right? absolutely. So I actually think it works both ways. The more that we pay attention to audiobooks, it's actually not all that different from printed text. We just have stopped looking for or paying attention to the way choices in print are shaping right. our interpretation. We're being shaped, yes. we just don't realize it. Yeah, these are all mediated things, right? So yeah. one mediation isn't gonna be all that different from another as long as we are paying attention to what that mediation does. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's so cool. And I think that's why both myself and my students have have so enjoyed having you come and talk to us is yeah. that this experience is so much there's so much more to what we're doing when we listen and when we create audio than we realize. Yeah. And, you know, for for some context, when I bring you into my class, it's right before they start working on their audiobooks. We have them um, record and produce a segment of an audiobook as an assignment. So it gives them the context when they're creating their audiobook, yeah. a foundation that a lot of times they start with the production, right? That's mm -hmm. what they're focused on of, how do I get clear narration? How do I put sound effects in there that make sense? But it's interesting to watch their eyes kind of like just get bigger as they're learning about the literary perspective right. and, and the power that they hold yes. by producing this text. Yes. Um, so thank you again for coming on the show. I, I uh, ever since I first heard you talk, or even really from when we first met up for coffee, mm -hmm. I've recognized that this is something that I wanted to get out in as many ways as possible because I just think it's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And for me in this podcast of focusing on storytelling, the medium of storytelling is such a big part of that. Yes. Uh, so I just, I, I like nerding out with you and getting academic with you. <laughs> um, so thank you for digging into all this context and research with us. And I'm really excited to see the future of your work here thank at the university you. and also beyond that. Um, I'm thrilled to find out today when you walked in that your course is now approved. Yes. So 
That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and thank you all again for joining us, all of you who are listening, and we'll see you next week on Create Space. Mm -hmm.